Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 19, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, UCI urbanist Scott Bolins will return to the show to break down what's taking place around along the Northern Ireland-Ireland border amidst the Brexit process. Thank you for staying tuned, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is UCI Professor Scott Bowens to bring his field research over the years to the matter of the Northern Ireland border amidst the Brexit process. Scott is professor and endowed chair in peace and international cooperation, planning policy and design at UCI's School of Social Ecology. His research focuses on nationalistic ethnic conflict and urbanism, politically divided cities, urban growth policy, and intergovernmental approaches to planning. Among his many publications on ethnic conflict in divided cities are his books, City and Soul in Divided in Divided Societies, Cities, Nationalism and Democratization, On Narrow Ground, and Urban Peace Building in Divided Cities, and most recently, Trajectories of Conflict and Peace, Jerusalem and Belfast, 1994. Scott continues to participate in national and international forums. The ones pertaining mainly to today's topics include United Nations Development Program, Bicommunal Development Program, London School of Economics and Political Science, Crisis States Research Center, Canadian Consortium on Human Security, Comparative Urban Studies Project, Wilson International Studies Center for Scholars, Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Center, Swedish Institute, and the Olaf Palma International Center. Scott completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology at UCLA, his Master's and PhD in Urban and Regional Planning at the University of North Carolina. His first faculty appointment was at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He's been at UCI since 1991. Scott's lucky break as a reporter in Salzburg, Austria, on ethnically divided cities, introduced him to new urban places and a different qualitative approach. As was with the case in the January 2nd, 2018 interview I conducted with Scott, I also had been partied to some of his early research when we previously were married and lived in Belfast for nearly three months in 1995. And I hasten to say, in that very moment, those TV monitors were also watching the O.J. Simpson trial over there in the U.K. I digress. With the latest turmoil developing with as the, the March 29 Brexit deadline rapidly approaches, Scott again is the obvious choice to cover what's going on in this realm along the Northern Ireland-Ireland border. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Scott Bolins. Glad to be with you again, Claudia. So... I don't want to sound really geeky here, but I guess my listeners are pretty used to this. I remember where I was when I first heard the Brexit results, and at that moment, I felt a consequential political turbulence. How about you? Uh, Claudia, I was in Northern Ireland doing field research in the three months lead up to the June 2016 Brexit uh, referendum. And all the polls were showing that Brexit was not going to win, that uh, the UK was going to vote to remain in the 
the uh, European Union. And so when the election results came out, it was a shock. And when it happened, it was in the midst of uh, a lot of fear in the UK about immigration. And that fear overtook a lot of voters and led to Brexit winning uh, 52 to 48 percent. And at that time, Donald Trump was running for president of the United States. And we thought we were thinking that Brexit had no chance. And many people thought that Trump had no chance. But when Brexit won, it was in a way a forerunner of what was to come uh, months later. And when people said Trump doesn't have a chance, I said, well, I was there during Brexit. And we, it, was a, it was a shockwave when the UK did that. And uh, so when Trump won in November, it's like, oh, my goodness, there's an echo of what happened with Brexit uh, five, five months earlier. Well, with so many ways to slice all the complexities associated with Brexit, it's good to have you on explain for us the local and the regional aspect of Brexit, why the Northern Ireland, Ireland border issue is such a complex and inflammatory one. We'll talk about the demographics in more specific later, but but. What generally, what's the importance okay. of this border? This is going to be a long answer. Uh, this well, that's is, what we have you for. Is, this is an issue of political complexity, political and geographic complexity. For the listeners out there, you have to realize, first of all, there's the island of Ireland, and it is detached. It's, a, it's not part physically of, of Britain, Wales, and Scotland. Yet, the top 17% of the island of Ireland is the province of Northern Ireland. And that province is linked not with Ireland, but with the United Kingdom. It's within the United Kingdom. So you have the United Kingdom of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland across the ocean, across the sea. And yet, so what we have is... That's funny you said ocean, but the Irish Sea. The Irish Sea. So you have this strange uh, historically based political separation of Northern Ireland from the country or Republic of Ireland. And thus there is a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. About 310 miles long is, I think, about. It's it's about 310 miles. That's about uh, twice, more than twice the size of the California-Mexico border, if you want to put it in perspective. It's crossed by about 270 different public roads. And listeners out there, if you've ever been in Ireland, you know what the roads are like. The, a lot of them are very small. And it's a very irregularly shaped border uh, based on old county boundaries. So that's the situation. Brexit comes in, and all of a sudden the UK, which, remember, in, includes the Northern Ireland, wants to separate from the European Union. The Republic of Ireland is part, a full-fledged member of the European Union. So with Brexit passing, that is creating a border between, I mean, if the UK does indeed leave, it, it creates a border between the UK and the European Union, right there in the old Nor- Northern Ireland, Ireland border. And that creates the problem. It's the only internal border that the United Kingdom would have with the EU. And if the UK totally breaks from the EU, what do you do with movement of people, movement of goods, issues of migration? 
because right now the e within the EU, you have total freedom, mobility of movement. But now if the UK leaves, uh, now you have a, the problem of what do you do with that border? Do you, do you create a, what's called a hard border or a soft border? And we can talk about what those two options mean and the, the political dilemma that's in, unfolded due to that. So what's very interesting is a look at the breakdown of the voting for, well, we'll call them the Remain, the Remain vote. Northern Ireland voted 1.9 million votes on June 23rd of the 2016. And so 56, as you said, voted to remain. And then, the, uh, but it seems that it's a very sectarian turnout that 85% of the Catholics voted to remain and only 40% of the Protestants. And you can sort of, you can see along the that meandering border you're describing mm -hmm. that there are, it is solid remain. I mean, up way up there. And so the people that are most affected by hard or soft border are the ones who would have nothing of this border. Mm -hmm. And I, and I hope we'll get into some of the the deeply personal thing of people that are commuting just to drop their kids off later. Mm -hmm. We'll hope you know get into that connection. So how I guess what because of, you've done so much work on the sectarian tension in Northern Ireland. All of for over a century, what has Brexit? What kind of big fat itch has it scratched? What kind of a scab has it pulled off in the people that are trying to get along since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998? I'll classify two major groups in Northern Ireland. I'll call them the Catholic Republicans and the Protestant Unionists. Protestant Unionists want to continue to remain in the UK whereas Catholic Republicans want to unite with Ireland and create a united Ireland of both Ireland and Northern Ireland. Now, that was a big deal. Between 1969 and 1998, a civil war took place in Northern Ireland. It's called the Troubles. And it killed over uh, 3,600 people. Bombings, shootings, the new use of a, of a chemical uh, bomb called Semtex, which then became very famous. We had paramilitaries uh, all over the place. We had the British Army in, in Northern Ireland to try to stabilize the situation. So it is, it, we have a peace in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, and political violence is much, is much decreased in Northern Ireland. But here's the problem with back to that border and why it's so significant. The uh, Catholic Republicans do not want any sort of border there. Um, and the fact that Brexit now is threatening to create, to reestablish a harder border than there is now is very frightening to Catholic Republicans. On the other hand, Protestant Unionists, many of them want a hard border because they want that clear demarcation between United Kingdom, which where the Protestant Unionists want to align, continue to align, and this Republic of Ireland. So Brexit and the creation of this hard or soft border plays directly into those larger, what are called sectarian differences about what the future, political future of Northern Ireland should be. Protestant Unionists want a hard border. They want physical checks. They don't want any sort of facilitation of mobility of people or goods across that border. Um, that, however, a hard border brings back to mind the ugly years of the Troubles because that border was a place of major sectarian killings, 
Um, it was smuggling by Republican, uh, by Catholic Republicans across the border. The British Army was all over the place. They barricaded and uh, and dynamited many of the minor roads, and they 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 created physical checks uh, at the borders to check people's ID and so forth. So it was a very very troubling time and a toxic time. Very toxic time. So when people, and that was 19, basically 19, 19, early 1970s to 1998, about three decades of horrific uh, conflict and, and terrible loss of life. So when now when Brexit is, is bringing back this issue of a border and whether it's going to be soft or hard, it brings back horrible memories on the part of people. Um, and yet it's embroiled in this larger uh, unionist versus Republican uh, d- uh, co- conflict over what the political future of Northern Ireland should be. It's interesting. Brexit passed fifty-two forty-eight throughout the United throughout the United Kingdom, but in Northern Ireland, as you mentioned, Claudia, it, there was support to remain in in the fifty-six percent. Yeah, yeah, which means against Brexit. And the reason why that was was Northern Ireland has been the beneficiary of about 10 billion pounds per year of, they call it subventions, we would call it subsidies, from the United Kingdom, I'm, I'm sorry, from Britain, from England, into Northern Ireland to stabilize that place. So Northern Ireland has kind of lived off these subsidies for decades, and that's why you saw the majority in Northern Ireland vote actually against Brexit and to remain in uh, the European Union. Because I thought the subventions were going to be undermined by the uh, an economic decline yeah. from withdrawal from the uh, yeah. EU. Yep. Well, the Democratic Unionist Party is the only reason Theresa May is in power now. So the ironies sort of stack up, don't they? Because the DUP is expressly housed uh, their their home, their base is in they are a part of northern ireland mm-hmm. so that kind of tension must you've been there a couple of times since brexit so is that irony sort of a, a hard one for people to swallow here's where things get incredibly fascinating and and close to unbelievable the dup is the democratic unionist party on both sides unionist and republican there there are two parties on each side one is a more moderate and the other one is extreme. On the uh, Republic, Catholic Republican side, that uh, more extreme party is Sinn Féin, which was uh, aligned for years with the Irish Republican Army, the IRA paramilitary. On the Unionist side is the Democratic Unionist Party, which was closely linked with several different Unionist paramilitaries, militias during the Troubles. DUP was the home of Ian Paisley, and Ian Paisley Jr. now and carrying Paisley, on that yeah. they've carried this torch for two plus generations. Yes. And Ian Paisley was this hardcore guy. He used to call Catholics Catholics to make it sound like yeah. they're alcoholics, and just this awful guy. Uh, the DUP. Um, and there's a story within Northern Ireland, but I'll focus on uh, Theresa May. The DUP is actually the only reason why the uh, conservative party is still in power. It's a, the DUP in Northern Ireland uh, is a Northern Ireland party, but it also sends representatives to Westminster, to the, to the British par- Parliament. They have 10 members there, very small, very, very small. But they hold a balance of power. They joined with the Theresa May conservative administration to 
uh, sustain them, to, to keep them in power. Without the DUP, uh, Teresa, the conservative party would be in, would not be likely not be in control and labor would have a good chance of taking over. So what does that mean? The DUP is lodged within British politics. The DUP, extreme unionist view, they support a hard border. They want the UK to, to leave entirely uh, from the European Union, no continuing relationship with the European Union. They're very hardcore Brexiteers. So that's lodged right within the May uh, government. Uh, the May government tried to finesse things with what's called a backstop. And they said, okay, we don't want a hard border in Northern Ireland and Ireland because of the, the memories of the past. Let's create, let's, let's maintain a customs union between the UK and Ireland, um, you know, guarantee free flow of goods and an implied mobility of people, maybe keep things the way they are, Let's have that customs union in place until we figure out what to do with the border. Now, that backstop was voted on by the British Parliament and fell terribly, and May was quite embarrassed by that. Uh, it was a compromise proposition by her, and the DUP, there's the DUP going, we don't want any continued customs union with uh, Ireland. We, Brexit set a complete exit. We want complete removal from the UK, from uh, United, uh, from uh, European Union. So there was the DUP lodged right, right within British politics, creating a, t- a tremendous amount of power, much greater than their, their, constitu- their size of 10 members because they play that, they're the, they're the one, if they remove themselves, then the Conservative Party may not be able to hold on to, to power in uh, Britain. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Scott Bolins, Professor Endowed Chair in Peace and International Cooperation at UCI's School of Social Ecology, talking today about the fraught dynamics along the Northern Ireland Ireland border amidst the Brexit process, which would make Northern Ireland, Ireland a hard, a, a, the hard one. So we're, I know there's a lot of more we're going to have time to talk about, but I, I guess along with the tensions that are ramping up, and I'm, I mean, I'm seeing ironies sort of packaged within ironies and all that, but there's so many opportunity costs. We're talking, I, I'm wanting to bring it down to like the local level because it's not getting a much attention for my taste for people to appreciate just how closely those uh, communities have interacted over that border immediate to there. But so like, you could drop off your kiddos on the other side of the border and then come back and go to work. But if you've got a, a border crossing that's going to check your paperwork and all that, though all those connections end. So, but there's there's the very social opportunity cost. There's there's an opportunity cost of the uh, added security of and then trade. There, the the flow of goods, whether it's a it's a truck, it's a um, it's merchandising. I mean, what opportunity costs leap up to you as the most severe? It's the mobility uh, issue with a hard border. First of all, what would be a hard border? Um, actually, one would look one, like Tijuana. Take take one step back. Uh, we have to mention that Brexit is supposed to take place on March 29th, yep. which is six weeks from now, and right now we're facing what's called the No Deal. Which means which means hard border. Which means de facto something has to be done with that border. 
Uh, a hard border, what does it mean? It would mean border posts. It would mean physical checks. It would mean long lines. It would be checking ID. Infrast- I mean, barriers, actual physical barriers. Yeah, that's That would be the full implication of a hard border. Now, right now, you know, there's these 270 roads. We're talking about every month, here's the estimates, about 180,000 trucks pass through that border, uh, over 200,000 vans, and about 2 million cars cross over that border every every month. Daily, about 30,000 people cross that border to travel to work, uh, to go get goods, and so forth. Can I, I just want to break down, when you were talking about how many roads, you said 270, I'm, I just found, I'm looking at up to 20, 275 crossing points, so I'm, I'm, it intimates to me there could be just a matter of taking a, a footpath over there and to also sort of frame the, the intimacy of the, the cross-border interactions. Yeah, there's, there's, ma- there's major roads. There's some major roads that cross the border, and those are the ones that during the Troubles, the British Army was, was all over those places. Those are the main points of mobility. But then there's all sorts of, I would call them smaller roads. Um, you could have a car on them, smaller roads, but very small Irish roads. And kind of the, the strong majority of, of these passageways are probably these smaller roads, which are very, very difficult to uh, check uh, mobility on those. Uh, the British Army had a hard time during the Troubles. They barricaded these roads because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't have checkpoints there. But to think of a hard border and you have checkpoints and... Um, you know, you have checkpoints maybe on the large roads, but all these smaller roads people are going to use to get in and around the, the barricades and the walls uh, in a Brexit hard border. So the, it, it doesn't seem feasible uh, when people mention the hard border between uh, the two places. It doesn't, seem f- it doesn't seem that it would be effective in, in, in stopping the flow. And, you know, this is the same discussion we have uh, today with the Trump wall uh, in America and Mexico. How how effective, beyond the politics, how effective would it actually be in stopping migration flows and so forth? There's a different there's a division of uh, opinion on that. Um, So it's the it's the mobility, Um, you know, 30,000 people per day crossing that border. That's a lot of people. And all those uh, uh, trucks and vans and cars I mentioned, that is a, that is a huge amount of, uh, right now, uh, fluidity in that border. And that fluidity would be uh, curtailed one way or the other, either in a very hard, rigid fashion with a hard border or with a soft border. What's a soft border, by the way? You know, people are just kind of figuring all this out. The soft border where that would allow more bo- mobility, people always talk about electronic checks. So much as like we use a toll road here and our car is checked Transponder, yeah. and, and registered, it would be that sort of thing. So mobility would be not curtailed, but it, there would be, it would be monitored in a way. Cameras, electronic monitoring, that would be the, the soft border version. So these, this hardening of a border is expensive. And if you've got, you're talking about those subventions are going to be starting to decline, but you've got now new expenses. What's the discussion? Where, what pot of money is the hardening on the border going to come out of? That's a great question. I don't, I don't even think politicians are there yet. They're trying to figure out, the, you know, the, the hard Brexit people are, are 
just trying to figure out how they're going to do it. Does DUP talk about how they're going to fund it, or they just they, keep the eye over they here? They don't. They don't. The rabbit out of the head. I mean, it would be the obligation of the United Kingdom, of the UK, to build this hard border and all these all these things because the Republic of Ireland doesn't want it. So it would be it would be it would be Britain and the UK uh, putting all that money into it. Uh, you know, you you could take the ten billion dollars in subventions that they currently plow in the Northern Ireland and take some of that. But, but it's not been it's not been I, considered. I don't know. You you would be diverting money that's really used for social infrastructure and social services, holding together that society, and divert it into physical infrastructure, which is not that much of a productive uh, expense by by Britain. And the I'm imagining the the in Northern Ireland. I well actually I I've, I've heard on public radio Northern Ireland is is promoting their economic development. So I don't know if that's a, an indicator they're prospering or if there's a decline factor and that that also is a a, a dynamic afoot here in trying to be solvent in mm-hmm. making these different these transitions with Brexit. Northern Ireland is doing better than it used to, uh, but you have to remember they had three decades of civil war in Northern Ireland, so it was a pretty beat-up place. Um, I spent a lot of time in Belfast, the major city and capital city, and its downtown is doing much better. It's actually attracting tourists now. Tourists uh, like, it's called conflict or dark tourism. People like going to places that have been inflicted with conflict. Uh, That's kind of a, maybe a indicator of where the human soul is these days. <laughs> they need that contact. Um, so it is doing better, um, but the, the main challenge in Northern Ireland and in Belfast particularly is those two sides. In Belfast, for instance, the working classes still are very segregated. There are Republican neighborhoods, there are unionist neighborhoods, and there are they are separated by walls. Anywhere between 30 and 50 different walls separate uh, neighborhoods that were at war with each other during the Troubles, uh, so-called peace walls. So you have the Good Friday Agreement was the peace agreement that addressed the political issue, uh, political power sharing, in 1998. But you still on the ground, you have this legacy of warfare and, the, and there's not mixing of people uh, among the working classes, and there's, there's still remaining hard feelings even 20 years post-peace agreement. Well, this begs the question, Scott, whether those urban physical barriers are an, uh, let's call it an infrastructure idiom that, that gives the Protestants, I'm not sure about the, the Catholics, but the Protestants are... That, that idiom is something they've lived with, and they're more casual about what that means to erect a fortification along the Northern Ireland-Ireland border. Yeah. Protestants um, are under threat demographically. Northern Ireland used to be a strong Protestant uh, area, Northern Ireland, and so did Belfast, and the Protestants were always in political control. Well, lo and behold, now Northern Ireland, due to demographic shifts, it's both Protestant out-migration and, and a higher uh, natural rate of birth by Catholics, um, it's gradually now become, in Northern Ireland, we're about at parity. We, we are about even between Catholics and Protestants, which is the first time Northern Ireland has been that way uh, for centuries. In Belfast, Catholics are now in the demographic majority. To what extent? Uh, significantly, okay. so much so that they control the city council. We have a Shin. F- we had we have Sinn Fein in power, 
in the city council. We have Shin Fein um, almost close to being the leading vote getter in the Northern Ireland Assembly um, election that last uh, took place a few years back. So the Protestant Unionists feel under threat. So those walls in Belfast give them security and it protects what they view as their neighborhoods. That Catholic birth rate is higher. So in a normal city, you would have more and more housing for Catholics being put into what were considered Protestant neighborhoods. Those walls stop that process. And the Protestants can argue that this is their territory. This is their neighborhood. And we want to re-energize Protestant neighborhood. We don't want Catholic housing here. So those walls give protection. And going back to the Northern Ireland Ireland uh, uh, border, I think that wall, that hard border, if it was to come, is viewed by Protestant Unionists as protection uh, against a, a Catholic tide, a demographic tide that's going to change things. And I'd, I'd like to recommend listeners get a good look at the Northern Ireland breakdown of the the Brexit vote in June of 2016. And you can see in Belfast itself, you could practically probably imagine where those walls are because there's very bright blue uh, out, outcomes and very pink. Blue is for remain and, and the mm. pink is for for Brexit. And you, mm. it's it's nowhere near like that in the rest of it's. There's much larger sort of regional uh, homogeneity of voting outcomes. But mm. in Belfast, it's very yeah. strong. Very striking in there. Yeah. Well, I guess there there are a lot of parallels I can see, and uh, like a little lightning round here. Make it our the the last question here is the parallels with the Democratic Unionist Party. I come. On, I want to put Ulster when I see you mm-hmm. in there. That the, the, them with the the Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party having an outsized kind of influence on policy or the the whole red meat, the tribal aspect of hardening the borders, the aspect of flow over the borders. We have so much to sort of relate in in both of these incidences. I don't know if what ones of those are the most striking to you as we conclude the interview. Well, the Democratic Unionist Party power you can see because it's structurally set up, set that up through the parliamentary system. It, it, it needs coalitions. This is something we don't have, coalitions between parties. We have caucuses, but not coalitions. Yeah, we have caucuses and not not, uh, parties. So the fragility of the conservative party, you can see that because of that need for that coalition. In the United States, the the overpower of the Freedom Caucus, that's just one caucus within a much larger political party. And there's arguments that that political party, you know, if they wanted to do something else that's not in line with the freedom, the, the rigid policies of the Freedom Caucus, they would just go ahead and do it. And a Freedom Caucus would have no recourse. Re- they couldn't say, well, we're going to remove ourselves from, from, uh, from government. Uh, it just doesn't happen in, in the United States. They just lose power, basically, uh, the Freedom Caucus. So uh, I would hold the Republican Party in the United States up to a much more, um, much more criticism here because they could take hold of their party much more than they are to a more uh, agreeable path and not beholden to the more rigid Freedom Caucus. In, in the Theresa May case in Britain, you can see how tedious her uh, power hold is. And you can, uh, you, you, even if you don't agree with it, you can see why that those politics are playing out as they are. It's kind of like a pickle. I didn't know I was going to bring up a, 
a baseball metaphor, but the the more she advances between first and second base, that just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. She's going to be out, and so what? But where is Britain going to be? She is so. in, she is in, a, in uh, not an enviable place at all. She is totally totally stuck. Um, and I have one other thing I wanted to yes. mention. Can I do it? Yes, yes. For the listeners out there, you're probably wondering what's going to happen in Northern Ireland and Ireland in the future. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement said when Northern Ireland is ready, they can vote on a so-called border poll, whether they want to to uh, unite with Ireland or whether they want to remain in the United Kingdom. That is going to happen in the foreseeable future. W- what does that mean? Probably in the next 10, 15 years. And you might think, after what I said about the Catholic uh, majority uh, emerging in Northern Ireland, that it would be a done deal. It might be United Ireland after all, but it is not clear. Um, wow. It is not clear. Uh, there are Catholics, some Catholics that are not that supportive of uniting with Ireland, and also the Republic of Ireland has to vote on this, and they are very ambivalent about taking on this troubled child up in the northern part of the island. So pay attention in the next 10, 15 years to a so-called border poll, whether to unite with Ireland, and that's going to be also full of fascinating political dynamics. We have to pick that up when, as after the the Brexit sort of deadline is is passed. With I, lots of, lots of unanswered additional questions to talk about because I we didn't even get anything sort of prescriptive because maybe there isn't any prescriptive. Don't put a plebiscite up if you don't have plans B, C, and D ready to go. Exactly. Well, and, and listeners, pay attention on March 29th to see what happens. See, pay close attention. Well, Scott Bowens, professor endowed chair in peace and international cooperation planning at UCI Social Ecology, talking about Brexit along the Northern Ireland, Ireland border. Thank you so much for being on today's show. You're very welcome, Claudia.